Habits and Health, episode 57. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Teresa Bittner, and she's partners with people who have been knocked down in life and want to to bounce back and and have a a bolder life. She's a coach, a speaker and an author specialising in resiliency, change and loss. So we're going to have a conversation with Teresa coming up in just a minute. And if you know anyone who gets some real value from some of the wisdom that Teresa does share with us, please do share the episode with them and hope you enjoy this week's show. Habits and health. My guest now is Teresa Bittner. How are you, Teresa? I'm doing well. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for having me. No, um, you're welcome. And we're, we're taking a trip over to Austin, Texas today. Yeah, that's right. North of Austin, the suburbs. <laughs> and is that where you're from? No, no, no. Originally, I'm from New York. Um, so, and that's kind of where my journey of change began. I was raised by an alcoholic, abusive parents. They didn't, you know, they did the best they could. And then moved to North Carolina, where I went to middle school and high school. And then it was the high tech boom in the 80s. And I came to Austin, Texas. Always wanted to be here. And I've been here since 1989. Not a native, but close. Wow. And, and how does Austin compare to New York? <laughs> very different. Uh, very, very different. It's, I mean, in some ways it's similar, but it's not because Austin, we moved here uh, in the 80s because it's a place where you can be and find anything. If you want culture, you can find it. You want cowboy, you know, air, air quotes, rednecky stuff. You could do that. If you want good school, great barbecue, of course. Um, so Austin affords a lot of that. Lots of people have found that out as well. So and it's high tech. And that's, that's my background. And you, I mean, work-wise now, so I mean, you're, you're busy, you have your own business, you, you work as a coach. Could you give the audience a little bit of a background about what it is you do now and how, why, where that came from? What was it that you went through to get to where you are now? Absolutely. It's a, it's a story I like to share, but in some cases, it's not fun to share because some of it, it was hard stuff to go through. So currently right now, I partner with those who've been knocked down by life and want to bounce back. Sounds mm. kind of simple. Um, and for me, bouncing back looks like recovering or getting through major losses and changes in life. Because as humans, we don't like change in general. Um, and some people fight it. So that's, that's kind of my superpower. And how I got the superpower of resiliency and change is um, the whole alcoholic abuse of home. And I was used to changing. We moved. Um, and I really thought I got change you know, I survived. I was a kiddo and I really thought I understood grief and death. I had lots of family members die very early in my life and in high school, friends from accidents and suicides. And then family members as you age were ill from cancer and other things. So I really thought I got it and I was a survivor and I would say that was it and I knew how to handle it. And that was until um, in 2009, my first husband, Chris, was killed in a motorcycle accident. It was really awful time for us. Um, I had just left a 16-year career in high tech where I was chief breadwinner, large and in charge. I used to like to call myself and had started a teaching career. I, thought I went and got certified to teach middle school science. So 
uh, we were living out on a 12 and a half acre ranch. The boys were freshmen and seniors in high school, so 14 and 17 when that happened. And I was like, oh, wow, now I'm a single mom of two pretty angry teenage dudes, and whoa, I'm a widow of 42. It's just like, what the heck? Um, and it took a long journey. Uh, the book that we'll talk about later um, is kind of my memoir about it because it was an ugly journey. I went back into some poor habits of eating and drinking my way through grief and trying to figure out what life was, trying to be you know, a teacher, still show up at school, department head, team lean, and all trying to keep it all together. And then sometime through that, I moved from surviving to thriving. And people kept saying, oh, Teresa, you're so strong. You're so resilient. And I'm just like, no, I'm surviving this stuff. Like, wow. But I started researching and getting into what does resiliency mean? And I realized, huh, I really do have that superpower of resiliency and bouncing back. Um, and that's what the memoir is about. And after both kiddos, my, my goal was survive, get both kiddos graduated and onto their you know, adult lives. And I thought, you know what? I have always wanted to start a business. I ended up, um, and the other thing that got us through that really hard time, I would say, is faith, family, friends, and surrounded by very supportive people. I'm very blessed to have had that. And I know that's a privilege that not everybody has. So I just want to acknowledge that for any listeners. But I decided I had a life coach, and it was like, oh, this is cool. You can actually get paid to do this. Wow, no way. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to open my own business. And I thought I would be life coaching and consulting. And that's kind of what I do now. But that was in 2014 and didn't sign my teaching contract. And was like, I'm starting my own business. Um, And that's how I got started. And funnily enough, uh, not funnily enough, but as the universe has, as soon as I started my business, my mom started getting ill with congestive heart failure. So here I was, you know, going to be the change and loss coach of the world. And I'm like, really? Thanks, mom. Um, and I was focusing on divorce, job loss, career changes, which I still do. And then I learned how to be a remote caregiver for my mom um, as she went from assisted living to hospitals to then hospice and then eventually her death in 2015. And then finding out, oh, dad's got dementia. We have to put him in memory care. Holy cow. He can't take care of himself. And it was um, it was a lot to deal with, like, oh, I'm starting a business. And, you know, one kid had joined the army, the other was getting married. And then I also had a boyfriend, we were getting married, blending families. So all of that life swirl um, helped, uh, I can look at that now and say, helped really round out who I am. And I tell people this because I've been through this. That's why I'm resilient. I keep learning about it. I love to study it, take classes. Um, and I'd love helping people through their grief and their losses and their changes so that they can become who they want to be um, and bounce back if that's what they want, move forward, um, lead their teams through changes, things like that. So that's my deep passion. And I really believe that through education and knowledge and skills, people can build their resiliency. It's, it's like a muscle. If we practice it, we can improve it. So that's a really long answer to your question, but that's the whole story and you got it all now. So the thing that comes to mind after you've explained all of that and given that brief description of, you know, what's happened over the last few decades, where do you think the resilience came from? What can you, what are the, what's the earliest memory you have of showing resilience? I mean, did you have it in childhood? Did it come in your twenties, thirties? Where was the first sign? Do you remember? 
Ooh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that one. That's a really good one. Um, let's see. So first resiliency. Um, and living in, oh, we were a very functioning home. Um, dad worked in high tech. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. And it was always, we didn't talk about it. So you always had to be put together and, you know, keep up appearances. What happened in the house at late at night was something we didn't talk about. So there was that, you know, you have to do the best that you can. You're smart. Be a good girl. And do the best that you can was inbred in me and never lie. Although Mm -hmm. looking back, there was like, there was a lot of denial, (laughs) not necessarily lies, but denials. Um, And then I got, um, I would call my teenagers, the turbulent teens, because I completely rebelled. We moved from New York where I was little miss it to Charlotte, North Carolina. And oh my God, the debutante thought Satan lived next door because she smoked and drank. (laughs) So literally had a horrible transition right in the middle of middle school and high school. So I rebelled and I remember getting in lots of trouble and all kinds of things happen. And dad just sitting down and he's like, look, you're going to either die or you're going to become really successful. Only you can choose. And I was like, huh? Okay. I have that. And there was um, a very pivotal uh, counselor at school that talked to me about this. He's like, you've got so much going, don't throw it away doing, you know, doing drugs, skipping school, drinking, partying. So that was probably the first time because I really got scared. I got myself in some big trouble and scared myself. And I was like, huh, I have a choice to make. Hmm. And, and I can choose to be sober or not sober. And I can choose to live and do these things. Um, and then I really found out about resiliency when I went to college um, and being one of very few women in 1984 to enter into computer science and engineering um, and realizing, oh, there's nobody here but me. Wow. And having that, you, I will do this. I will, you know, I will die trying. I will get this degree. Right. Because there's a number of things that in that description you gave before, there's so many knockbacks that you had. Mm-hmm. Many people would have just given up, mm-hmm. started blaming the world, you know, worries me kind of thing. But you mm-hmm. you didn't take that approach. Uh, I wouldn't say there wasn't blame. Uh, for a lot, many years, I blamed my parents for my right. issues. Like they did that to me. I right. went to uh, an Al-Anon for, you know, children of alcoholics and learned, right. oh, you have to take responsibility for yourself. Right. That was one of the things I learned was I have to take responsibility for myself, my feelings, and my behaviors. Blame doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But it's really easy to feel that way. Woe is me. Yeah. And I would say when my husband was killed, there was probably a year of woe is me. This sucks. I hate this woman who ran into him. Uh, just you know, evil thoughts about how I wanted to hurt her or family. Never acted on them, but just some wallowing occurred. Right. And it took a while to go, okay. And my friends were like, come on. Uh, my nickname is TQ. Those are my initials. Um, all right, come on, TQ. You got to get it together. Like I was always miss it, had it together. I'm like, well, I definitely fell apart. But having that and a, a strong faith as well. And so what, what, is there anything you can pinpoint that made the difference that got you out of that funk? What, what, what changed? Was it something you read, something someone said? It was a combination of things because I, in, in my book, I talk about the deep dark abyss um, that I felt, and I didn't know what depression was. I know I know a lot more now. Um, and there was a couple pivotal moments. It was me realizing, oh, I'm drinking an awful lot. You know, friends were bringing me cases of wine. I was drinking them pretty regularly. 
not a great thing. Turning into my dad. Ooh, didn't want to do that. Um, and the, the, me and the boys were, there was a lot of chaos and yelling and screaming and slamming of doors. And it was just, it's like, okay, I can't do this. This is so not me. I want to be happy. I'm an uplifting, fun person. I, I can't do this. I had dinner with a set of widows. And one widow had a very similar experience to me. And she was vehement, like, I am taking my daughters to the parole meetings. I'm going to make sure that SOB spends his life and going on and on. And I was just like, wow. And her kids are only eight years old. I'm like, ugh. And that was a pivotal moment of like, I don't want to be that. I definitely don't want to be that. The drinking and the, all this is not helping. Huh. And I, I went to my general, my doctor and said, hey, you know, I blew up at work. I like screamed at a colleague really loudly in a middle school saying all kinds of inappropriate things. My girlfriend was like, girlfriend, you need help. Go to the doctor. And he's like, oh, um, you have depression and probably anxiety. You know, it's normal after a major loss like that. Mm -hmm. So getting help from the doctor, friends going, get it together. And then realizing I had a choice. I could be evil, bitter, not evil, but just bitter, let the death define me and wallow in it, or I can make a change. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make a change. That's, um, as you were saying that, I, I had a similar but completely different circumstances, but I had a situation where the role model you kind of described that you didn't want to be, mm -hmm. I had that same kind of thing once, and and I looked, thought there's no way I want to be, I, w I won't tell the whole story because it's way too long, but I thought there's no way I want to be like that. And I use that as like an anti-role model because I mm -hmm. never want to be that bitter person. So that can be a really helpful kind of um, person to, to not model yourself on, I suppose you could say. Yeah, it was super surprising because I didn't want to do these widow things because people were very well-meaning. And, you know, oh, join these groups. I'm like, I don't want to hang around with 70, 80-year-old little grannies. I mean, that's nice. They're sweet, but that's not me. So mm. there were very few young women um, to talk to because in America there's support for military service people and first responders but not a lot for the average Jane and Joe right. um, side note a gal pal and I have started a widow resource called torn in half um, to just have resources for normal people because <laughs> right. it was so hard to find it there's more now and and this I guess so well I was going to say so many, but it's almost everyone has some kind of major trauma in their lives at some point, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I truly believe everybody's got a story, and, and it's what you do, and this is one of the big resiliency skills, is like what you do. Like, it's mm. stuff's got, life's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. Yeah. And then you don't have to do it alone and getting support, and then what do you do with it? Do you turn it into a story? Do you turn it into art? Mm. Uh, do you use it to better the world? That's, um, that's, that's a big thing for me. It's like, okay, take what I've learned and how can, and this was one of the things when my mom was dying, I was, I just remember hearing the voice of my coaches in my ear. What's the opportunity in this? No matter what, there's always the opportunity. I'm just like bawling my eyes out, cursing the world at the doctors. And I thought, what's the opportunity? And I was like, okay. Here's the opportunity. I'm learning about the U.S. elder care. That sucks, but I'm learning something. <laughs> and I turned, um, it was a very hard time to take care of your abusers. It's still kind of tricky for me. But 
my new husband that I'm married to, every time I'd come home, he's like, I don't want you going back there. Every time you come back, you're a wreck. Something's got to change. And I decided I'm going to turn it into a mission field. I'm going to show love to these people because they birthed me. They loved me the best they could. And just that switch of I hate going there. I hate dealing with the doctors. They're mean to me, blah, blah, blah. To okay, I'm just going to treat it as a mission field. It lets so much of that baloney dry, you know, just roll off. Yeah, I yeah, it just uh, yeah, not holding on to the to the kind of bitterness that so many people do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is so unhelpful. Yeah, and the best tool um, is to journal it, right? Or or you know, some people use art to paint it out, but somehow or another process the yuck out because if you hold it and you keep it in your head, it's just going to spin around. Right. So there's, you know, or get professional coaching therapy help or something like that, or talk to a spiritual leader if that's helpful. Right. And, and talking of coaching. So when was it that you thought, Hmm, I'd like to help other people with this and, and started thinking about coaching as a, as a way to move forward. Interesting. Cause, um, I realized after I started the coaching school and learning about coaching that I've actually been doing it most of my life because I became a computer science programmer and I started as software development. Hated it. I was good, but it was boring. I quickly wanted to work as a manager and grow people. Didn't know that was called coaching then. Um, So I loved being a manager and a project manager and mentoring other young women in tech. So if you think about that, it's been over 30 years, but the real, and then it was interesting because I left that world, went into education, and I quickly became uh, a coach to new teachers as well. I mean, I was like, oh, I'm only a second-year teacher. They're like, no, you're great. Go to Joe. Oh, okay. So, uh, but the real business thing was in 2013. Like, okay, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm going to go get certified. That's a word to the wise out there. Anybody can call themselves a coach. Make sure you pick somebody who's trained and credentialed. That's my personal thing. <laughs> Because otherwise, you don't know what you're getting. Because I felt it was important to have those skills. So that's when it officially started, in 2014. And is there anything, since you've been coaching people, I mean, you've been doing it for quite a few years now, mm-hmm. is there anything about coaching that, I don't know, has really surprised you, that, that you didn't think it would be like this? That it, is there any, anything along those lines? Oh, gosh, there's lots of little things like that. One of them is that I learn and grow through my clients. Like right. they, in, in the coaching world, there's kind of a thing that says you only coach what you need to learn. Right. And that's one of those every, every time it happens, you're like, whoa, I, I think to myself, whoa, okay, God, universe, you really paired us together because we are on a trip together. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been the most surprising thing. And then I think that's the other thing is – it's been interesting because I've been doing it long enough and I'm going for the next credential as how much I've grown. And I used to see other coaches, what I thought do amazing coaching and have results like quickly. And I'm now able to do that. I'm like, that's super cool. Like when your client says, wow, that's a good question. Oh, I never thought about that. It's like, Oh yes. Doing the good work. So what, what is it that you feel? I mean, you, you mentioned just now about you're, you're paired with some people and it's going to be a real, mm-hmm. I'm guessing there's something about you that appeals to, well, the clients that you appeal to, what do you think it is that draws them to you? What, how, what issues are they having that you can help them with? 
Um, interesting you should ask that. Um, I do, I'm also a mental health certified. So through the pandemic, my business has blossomed, sadly enough. But dealing with workplace anxiety is a big thing. Imposter syndrome is another one that comes up. Career changes, um, you know, I want to change from this career to that career. Job changes is a big thing I do. The other thing that's interesting is the how to deal with the losses and the changes of the pandemic, the losses of freedom. Many mm. clients have had people die on their team or in their family. Mm. And then um, from the pandemic, that kind of, what am I doing on this earth and why am I doing what I do? And is this job slash career right or is there something more? So it kind of, it spans an interesting dilemma, uh, diversity of people. But I think it's the, the wondering what's unknown. I want to figure this out and, or I want help with my goals to the really hard grief. I still have lots of grief clients as well. And those those are tricky. I I won't lie. Just people are always like, Teresa, what do I say? What do I do? I'm like, I I might be an expert, but I still don't know. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you're looking for the fastest and most effective way to transform your energy and well-being, we invite you to join Tony for an upcoming Habits and Health workshop. This five-week group workshop will empower you with tools to disrupt unwanted habits and make positive changes easy. You'll enjoy sounder sleep, better energy, less stress, and a happier mood. Workshops begin on the first week of every month, and you can sign up now at tonywinyard.com. Now, back to the show. So, so are you saying that in the last two years, the issues that you're helping people with have been quite different since before the lockdown? different. I don't know if more people are realizing that. Um, Workplace anxiety is huge. That's like performance anxiety is massive as well as, you know, hey, I'm working from home now and then they want me to go into the office. I'm scared or the dynamics have changed. Um, And a lot of people are doing the soul searching of what is going on? Why am I in this world? And oh, hey, wait a minute, you guys are treating me poorly or you're treating me great. You know, and what matters most to them. I, I think those are the, some of the most interesting things that have come out. And then just lots of anxiety you know, from all different places. Health-wise, is it safe to go out? Is it safe to go to work? You know, is my performance good enough? I'm introverted. I liked working from home. I hate going back to the office. It's <laughs> somewhat of a common thing. I think anxiety is... Yeah, so many people have had massive amounts of anxiety in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. How I'm thinking, how is it that you're able to help people with anxiety? What What do you think is called? Well, not so much what is causing them anxiety, but what is the way that you can help people to to maybe to have less anxiety? Sure, sure. And I, I do want to say that you know I'm not. I, counselor or therapist so I don't diagnose or prescribe but there mm-hmm. are things you can do for your anxiety one of the first things is acknowledge it and recognize it I'm mm-hmm. anxious about um, I like to draw people into two places one is 
um, how are you feeling bodily with your anxiety? Like, where do you feel it? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your shoulders? Is it in your feet? And getting people to pay attention to their body and listen for it. I had a really great client experience yesterday. She's like, I never knew. This is where I felt it. Now that I know, I'm like, I can do something. I'm like, yay. Because that's kind of the first is acknowledging it and finding out where it is. And then also naming the feeling you're having. Mm-hmm. I feel. And I often ask clients to journal the I feel statements. I feel angry. I feel anxious. I feel sad, mad, whatever. I always like to have folks journal at the end. I feel grateful for, I'm blessed by, I saw Jod today, so they don't end up in the dark place. So those are just a couple of things that the body and emotional awareness first, and then, okay, let's process it out as we're feeling it. And there's all kinds of tools. And the toolbox that I have, I like to tell people that. So are you typically working with people, is it, I mean, I, I know this is a bit like how long is a piece of string, but is it usually like a few months or does it go into years? I mean, what, what is typical with most of your clients? I wish I could say there's a typical. Uh, it depends. Some people are just a few sessions, you right. know, a handful, a month or two. I have many clients that I'm on, you know, years two and three. I would say most clients are about six months to a year. Right. Um, and then they may come back for what we call a tune-up or some right. people have me on retainer and like, hey, you know, not, hey, I want to talk to you. It's been a month. Oh my gosh, I for, you know, I'm not working out again. Look at me, I feel bad. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so anyone who's listening to this now, and what kind of issues might they be having that would be a maybe they would be worthwhile contacting you? What typically, what kind of people are do you tend to work with? Uh, those that want to have help. And want mm-hmm. to want to do the work. Coaching is work. It's um, so many well-meaning friends and family are like, "Oh, so and so needs to see you." I'm like, "Okay, do they want to coach? Do they want to do something?" Right. So, and I think if you're realizing I'm in this place of you know anxiety, grief, I'm lost, I'm stuck, and especially with the grieving folks, have you? You know, done some therapy and counseling could be super helpful. And then you kind of pop your head up and you're like, I just, I just can't. I don't know why. I set these great goals. I, I just, I'm not getting them done. Um, so many clients come with that. Like, I know how to do this. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing it. Um, and that's a great time to partner with a coach. I even keep a coach on my bench. I keep coaches so I can get things done because we're right. human and we have great intentions and we, my goals are over here all pretty, but. Yeah, it's you have some accountability there that can be really helpful. And if you're stuck, let's figure, let's do a little deep dive and figure out why you're stuck. Get past that. Well, in I always think that if a coach doesn't have a coach, that's uh, what are they? What are they saying about coaching? That's a good one, Tony. You're smart. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, but, and it's um, funny because I didn't. Ha- I went through a very intensive training program and didn't have a coach for a while, and then I hired one. And I was like. Again, I was like, man, okay, why did I let that go? So much, because I get so much more done and so many more things are happening. And it's, we can't, it's impossible for us to see ourselves where someone else is able to mm-hmm. get, give us a very different perspective than, than mm-hmm. what we have of ourselves. And that's a wonderful thing about coaching. I like to hold my hand up and say, hey, this is you. This is awesome you. We're going to clean it out. And then you can see you and do the great things that you were, you know, you were brought on this earth to do. And, and on that, do you think is one of the biggest issues most people have is the negative self-talk and the lack of self-compassion? Is, is that a big issue that you face a lot? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and uh, with the favorite book we'll talk about, it's the idea of what we were told about ourselves mm-hmm. and unwinding that negative self-talk and the negative beliefs that you might have or limiting beliefs that you have about yourself. Yeah. I mean, because a lot of it is you're your best ally and you're, you're your best saboteur. And so you're, you, when did you write the book? I wrote the book in, well, <laughs> uh, the book started. So the funny thing about the book, anybody who wants to write a book, you can. Never thought I was going to do that. Um, the book came from my Facebook post after my husband died is kind of how I got the timeline. Because I, my friends and family are spread out all over the world. And they're like, put on Facebook every day. That way we know you're alive and you didn't off yourself or you know, do anything to the kids. I'm like, okay, fine. So I did that. So I started writing the book probably two years after Chris was killed. But that I couldn't write much, so I stopped. And every time I put the book down, somebody would ask me to tell my story and then tell me, oh, my gosh, you need to write a book about this. I was like, no, I don't want to write a book. And it just became more and more like this finger was pointing down from on high, write the book, Teresa, write the book. Oh my God, just get the book done. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I took some time, joined, uh, thought I had a great manuscript and a, and a mastermind group of other coaches. This great coach said, hey, have you ever heard of the you know, Texas League of Writers? No, maybe you should take a class. So I took a class on how to write. Computer scientists do not know how to write. I was like, oh, I'm eating crayons. And there's like a New York Times bestseller here. Wow. So I got, took some classes. And that's how it started. And I joined a writing critique group to help me with my writing. And it, it took about two and a half years to birth it and then an editor to help me take it the rest of the way. And on that process, can you remember... So when you first actually, you know, you had all those people saying, oh, you need to write a book and you were Mm -hmm. resistant to that initially. Once Mm -hmm. you decided, right, I'm going to write a book. Can you remember what your intentions were for the book then? And then when you actually (laughs) wrote the book, when it came to actually, you know, the the finished edit, what was, how much had your intentions changed in that period? That's a fascinating question. You ask really good questions. Um, So my intention for the book was just to get the story out. I figured the story could help others. I thought maybe it would help me in my coaching business and I would use it with clients. That was kind of the initial thing. Um, By the time I finished the book, I had no idea my own like therapeutic process that I went to. It was gut wrenching, horrible. I almost stopped many times. I had some mean people say mean things about the book. Um, (laughs) Had a, excuse me, a great coach colleague say, you know, I'm tired of hearing you whine about the book. Just shut up and write the blankety blank book or, you know, stop talking about it. I was like, oh, so I had, you know, write the blankety blank book up on my, (laughs) just write. And that's a great thing I would love to tell everybody. It's just write. You don't have to publish it. You just write. If you get a story, write it. It's a beautiful thing. We found a story that my husband Bill's mom wrote and it's, you know, on typewriter paper. It's just, it's a legacy she has because she's no longer with us. I never got to meet her, so I could meet her that way. All right. And did you have a particular sort of type of person in mind as you were writing the book? It would be a person who, and it's actually grown since uh, Soul of the book has its own life. I kind of like once I birthed it and I'm like, okay, God, take it, do whatever you're going to do with it. And it has its own life. And it's been a balm to those who are grieving. And it's also been a balm because it's soul love how a dog taught me to breathe again. Also to dog lovers and animal lovers who have what they believe is like, you know, spirit animal that's because this dog 
tells all the yucky stuff. And he was like my therapy dog, not officially, but I swear to it's like, okay, you're like some weird angel dog on earth. And what, what, um, type of, what type of dog is it? He was a Doberman and I right. got him uh, because we lived on a ranch. I needed something to protect me and I thought he would do it. Plus I always wanted a Doberman and my husband, Chris, didn't want one. I'm like, I'm going to get a Doberman. Whoa. So he was the biggest wiener. He was such a sissy. Sounded good, looked good, like a scary dog. But if you came up to him, he'd pee himself. <laughs> it was fun. So when, when the book was, re- well, when, when was the book released? It was released in 2018. And the, the, what was the reaction like? Was there any reactions that surprised you at all? Um, most people, uh, were really like, Oh, Hey, great. We're Thank you. You know, and supported me and had a book launch and all of that. Um, there's some people who didn't like it and I'm sure thought I did that for my own, you know, grandiose for my business and, you know, Ooh, how dare you make money off of that? But it was like, no, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to tell the story. Right. Um, you know, and plus, trust me, I, I think I broke even, maybe because I self-published, but boy, howdy. No, you don't make a lot of money writing books. I knew that. <laughs> but have there been people reached out to you that's, that's really helped them? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I still get emails. Um, I was really surprised because it's Amazon is I got 4.7 stars and people, you know, at first it was all my friends and family. Of course, they're going to write nice things. But then people around in the industry started writing reviews that was surprising and then the emails i get for people you know who've been through losses not necessarily a death or an animal loss how it's helped them uh dog lovers how they're like oh yes this is a story that needs to be told i've had other people who they've watched their friends go through grief and didn't understand it and that's the other thing about the book i told it in a real raw visceral kind of new york out there way so people could see what grief really looks like um one of the most profound things that happened is i was in a writing group with a pastor and he'd been a pastor for years he's like oh my gosh Teresa, i have been such an idiot i haven't i haven't been there for the widows i'm like well you didn't know and like until you go through it you don't know and also they're not going to come out and tell you we're all embarrassed by how ugly it gets and, and also the other purpose is to normalize the grief conversation because it's not mm-hmm. if it's when we're going to die in the Western world, for whatever reason, we call it passing. They've left us. Like I would just want to say, no, they died. We need to use the word dying and death. It's part yeah. of life. It can be beautiful. It's so, it's so difficult for most people to speak about death, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you, are you familiar with the death cafes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, there used to be one in Austin. I don't know if they're still there. And um, you, in the UK, you guys have some really great resources available mm-hmm. as well. You're opening up. And it's starting to open up more in the US, but it's, it's a funky culture thing. I mean, I, another thing I tell people is like, oh, my gosh, we had all our affairs in order. We had the papers, the wills, you know, all that stuff. It made a horrible situation easier. I can't imagine having it not done. If you mm-hmm. don't have that, holy cow, please do that for your family. What, what do you think is, is um, I don't know, I was going to say what is the hardest thing to deal with about death, but I mean, that's so many different angles. That you can, what, what, what comes to mind when I say that? Uh, I think when you're the widow or widower or the one dealing with the estate, the amount of flipping paperwork and phone calls, and it's, 
I think it's universal. I don't know anybody that I've talked to. It's just you make this giant list of things you have to do, and then the mail starts piling up or the bills start piling up. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, I have to make another phone call. Or, you know, I sent the death certificate in 37 times and they still haven't stopped, you know, processing X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. That's super hard. And, it, and the mail that just keeps coming. Oh, my gosh. Like, I still get mail for Chris. I'm like, okay, we're only in year 13. And I've moved. And I've changed my name. And I've been married. What the hey? <laughs> like, there's nothing in his name. But he still gets mail. As my mom does. I'm like, awesome. Go, mom. <laughs> so, of the... It sounds like that you've come, you've come, been in in touch with or with many people who've experienced grief and and death mm-hmm. and so on. So, from the all the experience that you've kind of accumulated, would you say what what are the best ways maybe of dealing with death and and the worst things? Like maybe just one or two things that are mm-hmm. that help it and that really kind of make it much worse. I think making it worse would be not getting help or trying to stuff it. Um, If you stuff it, it will leak out and pretend that everything's okay. The other thing is over busyness. Our Western world is very much like, oh, I'm just going to workaholic myself to death. Easy way of coping, but it can become an addiction. Those are the unhelpful things. And also addictions pop up in that. Um, The most helpful is a learning about the death process. You know, what does it look like? What does it mean to grieve? Um, getting help, uh, support with someone, you know, joining a, a group uh, and not going it alone, I think are the biggest things to do for grief. And talk to your loved ones about the expectations so that you know when, when it, if it happens, how to deal with it so you don't have all that unknown and the yuck um, and the financial pressures because it, it doesn't have to be horrible. I mean, it will be horrible, but it doesn't have to be financially ruining or anything like that so we, we touched upon your book just now and mm-hmm. it made me wonder if you've got any ideas about a follow-up i do <laughs> yes i am writing it it is called elder care nightmare mission of love um, this is a book that people keep telling me to write and i keep getting calls on hey Teresa, i know you've dealt with blah blah, blah. um so it's about my mission dealing with my parents from the start to the end Oof. and it's um it's, it's not easy to write about <laughs> um, um, and, and my dad's 93 and still living cadillac and broke his hip during covid had covid he's just fine doesn't know who anybody is but he's cadillac so when do you think that might be finished well, I'd hoped this year would be a great part of it getting finished, and I'm, I'm chunking out chapters much faster than I had. Um, so we'll see. Um, 2023, almost definitely, but not for sure. Um, but the chapters are coming, and they're coming easier. I had started writing it, and then I put it down. Like many writers, you start, and you're like, eh, I can't do that anymore. Um, Kenson, just the whole dad thing got really crazy there for a while. And will that be self-published again, or will you go a different route? I'm probably going to self-publish again. Um, I'm toying with the idea of getting an agent and all of that. For me, it's more important to get the story out. Um, And I also kind of, you know, I'm a recovering control freak. So when you go with an agency, you lose control. Like I self-publish, I can update it. Oops, I got a spelling error. I can update it. (laughs) Right. And and speaking of books, there's, um, I believe there's a book that's really kind of, 
moved you in in your past? Mm-hmm. What, what, what was that? What book was that? That book is The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Oh right. my goodness! And there's a fifth agreement by his son, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., who I've also actually met in person. Oh my gosh! Um, but that book, it was funny because when Bill and I started dating. He's like, you have to read this. I was like, okay. So he started reading it out loud to me. And this is where we knew Han, another affirmation that Hans the Doberman was different. He would sit like he was, and he wouldn't sit on the couch with us. He would sit in front and stare at Bill while Bill read it to me. Like he was absorbing it. And Bill was like, your dog is weird. I'm like, he's learning. He's got his next job to do. I don't know. So, um, and the four agreements have changed my life. And I recommend it to almost all of my clients. And what was it about the book? I mean, is there, is there any one thing that you can think that really that made it different from all the other books that you've read? The lessons about not taking things personally right. and don't make assumptions and the whole concept of the stories we tell. For me, that was a, like one of those brain chunks, like, I got it. Like, the, like oh, this is why people act this way. This is why mom might say this or so-and-so. And not you know, realizing, hey, that's your story. It's okay. I don't have to take your junk and put it on me. It's okay. Or I can be sad for you. Um, it was totally liberating. And I, I, I'm guessing that many of the things that he said, you'd probably come across before, but it was the way that it was put put across in that book that was maybe spoke to you more. With, I think so. I think so. And it, it, I mean, I always tell my clients, it's a little woo-woo from what you would think from Teresa, but it it looks at things in such a different way and it just, it makes so much sense. Mm. Um, and it's very personal. And they, I mean, both, uh, Don Miguel senior and junior and the brothers have all written different books and they're so good. They're mm. just for, if you want to come up with self mastery or anything like that, they're just so good. So if people want to find out more about you, your, your website, social media, your books and so on, where, where should they look? You can find me social media. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just look up Teresa Bittner. Um, and then my website is boldfulfilledlifecoach.com. Very long name. The book, I can hold it up here. I don't know if you do video or not. But here's the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is Soul Love, How a Dog Taught Me to Breathe Again. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles. It's in Kindle, hard book, paperback, and you could go to my website if you wanted a signed copy. I'd be happy to mail it to you. You guys in the UK will have to work on the uh, how to, how we do that shipping. But hey, I know how to do that. <laughs> and, and finally, Teresa, is there a, a quotation that you like? Lots of different quotes came to mind when you asked that question in your email. But I think the quote I want to leave people with is one that I came up with: "Is you don't have to do this alone." And why? Why is it that, that one? We can grow and learn and move past our stuckness, our lostness, or grief when we're with other people. And we were, I mean, humans are made for relations. That's why the pandemic and being solo is so hard. Find someone, find a group, find supportive people, and don't do it alone. They're out there. Teresa, thank you for, for everything you just shared. And um, yeah, best of luck for the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great thinking questions too. (laughs) Thank you. Next week, episode 58 with Polly Bateman. This is an amazing episode. I I found it very difficult to stop recording because Polly just gave so much great information. 
Her bio says she's a straight-talking, empathetic and disarmingly humorous mindset and performance mentor. Polly Bateman wants to disrupt your beliefs and break through the self-imposed barriers that limit your potential. And there was, it was all around mindset. And she just came out with some great answers to, to the questions I was asking her. And it's definitely going to be a part two to this episode because there was so many things that she said that there was just many different questions I wanted to to fire at her in the responses that she was giving me so this is next week episode 58 with Polly Bateman if you enjoyed this week's episode with Teresa Bettner please do share the episode with anyone who you feel would get some real value from it and I hope you have a great week thanks for tuning in to the habits and health podcast where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.